This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. This is America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. This week saw President Donald Trump impeached for the second time, the only president that has ever happened to. So now what? What does this mean for what's left of his presidency and even 2024? Joining me is Jeffrey Rosen, president and CEO of the National Constitution Center, which is the only institution in America actually chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the United States Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. Rosen's also a professor at the George Washington University Law School. And Jeff, I should make clear at the start, you are not the Jeff Rosen who is now acting Attorney General of the United States since Bill Barr resigned. I am not, so please stop tweeting me to invoke the 25th Amendment, everyone. It's a different Jeffrey Rosen. <laughs> <laughs> and no, no relation to the totally fictional David Rosen, who was Attorney General in the TV show Scandal, I take it as well. No, there are a lot of Rosens who are running the Justice Department, but I'm not one of them, thankfully for me. Let's get into this. Uh, let's get to impeachment because there's a lot of information going around on social media, much of it dead wrong. Let's go back to the most basic question that always comes up when we talk about the impeachment process, high crimes and misdemeanors. What are they? Is there any actual definition, as in the criminal case meaning of such words? There's not a criminal definition. And in fact, there's a pretty broad consensus among liberal and conservative scholars that you don't have to commit a technical crime in order to be impeached. Uh, there could be a grave dereliction of duty that didn't meet the technical violation of incitement to violence, for example, that could qualify as a high crime, or you could have a really minor crime like jaywalking that wouldn't qualify for impeachment. So all that is to say that it is up to Congress to decide what is a high crime, and Congress decided that incitement to insurrection was a high crime, and now it's up to the Senate to try the case and decide whether or not they agree. When the Constitution was put together, it was a big argument whether it should be the Senate or the Supreme Court. Uh, Alexander Hamilton argued strongly for the Senate as the place where impeachment charges would be considered at a trial. And, and he did say, 
These crimes are of a nature which uh, may, with peculiar propriety, be denominated political as they relate chiefly to injuries done immediately to society itself. So even at the beginning, it was thought this is a political process, not a criminal process. That's exactly right. Uh, A combination of a political and constitutional process, essentially that it was ultimately up to the political branches, to, to the House and Senate, to decide what counted as a high crime. It was very important that the framers decided to keep the Supreme Court out of it. They thought that the Supreme Court might ultimately be reviewing the criminality of conduct after an impeached official took office, and therefore they didn't want the judges to have any role in deciding the impeachment itself. And that's also significant because the big constitutional question of the moment is, does the Senate have the power to try a president after he's left office? And that is a open question. Obviously, no former president has ever been tried before. There are arguments on both sides that we can talk about. But the crucial point is the Supreme Court is unlikely to intervene if the Senate does decide to go ahead, because the Supreme Court has said that the Senate has the sole power to try impeachments, and therefore, short of refusing to hold a meaningful trial at all, like flipping a coin or convicting someone just because the Senate thinks the person's a bad guy, the Supreme Court said in a case called Walter Nixon that the justices have no role to play in reviewing the impeachment process. And this does bring up an interesting point, as you were as you were mentioning, because we're just in territory here we've never been in before. And what are the arguments about impeaching a president who is no longer president? Well, the argument uh, that says that he can't be impeached after he's no longer president is basically rooted in the text of the impeachment clause, which says that the penalties for impeachment are removal from office and disqualification to hold future offices of honor, trust, or profit. So the textualist reading is that uh, if you can't be removed from office, then you can't also be disqualified from holding future office. And therefore, once the president's gone, you can't try him. The argument on the other side is that it makes no sense to allow a president or any official simply by resigning the moment that the impeachment trial is about to begin to avoid the penalty of disqualification from holding future office. There is not a lot of precedent on this question. The the closest one is an 1876 case involving President Grant, Secretary of War, who did resign just after the impeachment articles came in, and the Senate essentially decided that they could try him, but that he wasn't guilty of the alleged crime. So that that seems to count in favor of allowing the uh, post-resignation or, or departure impeachments. And then there's a really interesting statement by uh, President John Quincy Adams, who uh, served in Congress after he left the White House. And uh, John Quincy Adams said that um, essentially, as long as I remain on, on the floor of this house, I am amenable to examination and impeachment for my conduct as president. He, he thought that a former president could be impeached and tried long after he left office. So good arguments on, well, let me just say there are arguments on both sides. I'll leave it up to listeners to decide what what they think based on uh, their own studies. But I just want to emphasize again, this is not a clear case that the Supreme Court is likely to resolve. It's ultimately up to each senator to decide for him or herself whether whether or not uh, they think that a trial is permissible. Now, we also have to make clear some things because many people think that if a president were to be impeached and convicted, which, of course, hasn't happened yet, and then there's this whole question of what if it happened after he's no longer president. But that said, 
that if a president is impeached and convicted, he could no longer run for president, that President Trump, if convicted by the full Senate, would not be able to run in 2024. But actually, not only would he have to be convicted, but the Senate would have to take a very specific action to disqualify him from running for future office. That's exactly right. There would be two votes in the Senate. The first is whether or not to convict him of the high crime and misdemeanor of incitement to insurrection. And the second would be on the penalty. Um, the first vote, the guilt phase, requires a two-thirds vote. The second phase, to disqualify him from holding future office, just requires a majority vote. Now, of course, if there were two-thirds votes to convict, there'd probably be a majority to disqualify. But uh, it's significant that the framers uh, created two separate phases of that of that trial. Even though a number of people have been impeached, uh, we've had uh, two, well, three presidents, uh, but we've never had a conviction of a president, but we have had impeachments and convictions of other people, but rarely, I think only three times in history, has anybody been actually disqualified uh, from office. And in fact, there's a, a, a very good uh, picture of that right now. Alcee Hastings, who was impeached and convicted as a federal judge for bribery and perjury in 1988, was not also disqualified and then just four years later elected to the House of Representatives, serves there to this day, having voted, some would say ironically, to impeach the president. Yes, uh, as you say, um, lots of uh, in, uh, there have been few disqualifications and Hastings is a remarkable example of why disqualification is important if the Senate thinks that uh, an official has acted so gravely that he might uh, do damage by holding future office. Uh, and, that, and that's really what the framers were focused on. They believed that impeachment was a protection for the Constitution itself against corruption, treason, or bribery, or other high crimes or misdemeanors. Let's remember the text of the Constitution there, treason, bribery, or other high crimes or misdemeanors. And in such a case, if the Senate did conclude that such a high crime were committed, they might want to disqualify someone from holding future office. Okay, final thing. On disqualification on on that issue the language in the constitution as as with so much about impeachment is is a little vague uh it says disqualification um to hold and enjoy any office of honor trust or profit of the under the united states uh office of honor trust or profit does not specifically say you can't be president you can't be sent senator or something like that you know, as you say, nothing is clear when it hasn't been examined or litigated before. But I don't, I don't think that there's much doubt that the presidency is an office of honor, trust, or profit under the United States. It is all those things according to the plain meanings of those words. And the framers, I think, meant any federal office. I hope people are a little clearer or at least as clear as, as we can be about what may happen as we go into this territory where, again, uh, we've never specifically been in before. Jeffrey Rosen is president and CEO of the National Constitution Center. And uh, Jeffrey, I, I thank you for your help today. Pleasure to talk and hope listeners will check out the National Constitution Center's interactive constitution to hear from the top liberal and conservative scholars in America about what they agree and disagree about the impeachment clause and all the important constitutional questions we've been talking about. That's at constitutioncenter.org. You're listening to America Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. 
Talking about COVID is important because while it may be taking a backseat in the news right now, the surge continues with almost a quarter of a million new cases a day in the United States, a death toll nearing 400,000, and a raging surge, especially in Arizona and California. Dr. Mel Herbert, whose years as an emergency room physician and teaching at UCLA has given him the experience to deal with this and whose service MRAP has emergency department physicians everywhere sharing knowledge and experience, is back with us. Mel, you are in Los Angeles, where you are seeing a death every eight minutes now. How is it? It is terrible. It is absolutely a disaster. Our worst fears from you know six months ago have come true. Yeah, I was in the hospital just a few days ago, and I just can't tell you how much death there is there. Um, just patients coding um, all the time. And so many of these patients are young. I mean, they're in their 30s and 40s. It's just, uh, it's terrifying. It's also a little bit regional. Um, Some hospitals and some areas being affected much worse than others. And this is part of sort of the confusing thing about this virus is uh, that even within regions like Los Angeles County, it can be affecting some hospitals much worse than others. But overall, it's pretty much terrible everywhere. And in some places, it's post-apocalyptic. Yeah, tell me about something you just said, because I think there is a feeling that, well, if you're under, say, 65, um, you know, you'll feel bad for a little while, but you'll get over it. But you're saying you're seeing a lot of people now who are dying in their 30s and 40s. Yeah, it certainly is much worse the older you are, the more comorbid diseases you have, like diabetes and obesity. But it really is affecting a lot of young people, in part because so many people in Los Angeles are, are positive, have the virus. I think the latest estimate is somewhere around one in 16 people in the county are infected right now. And so there's a tremendous number of young people in Los Angeles County. And so it's just sort of the law of large numbers. If you infect a large number of people, even if any individual person's chance of getting sick isn't very high, you will still see a large number of young people getting sick. And that's what we're seeing in the hospitals, that although it is affecting mostly the elderly, there is a tremendous number of relatively young people who we are seeing getting sicker and sicker and going to the ICU and dying. On one shift, I saw three people between the age of 40 and 50 die on a shift. That's, I've never seen that before. You've been back in the ER of late, not, not just teaching. And I know doctors, nurses, uh, EMTs who were already worn out physically and mentally by this, many suffering you know, depression by constantly being surrounded by death, are seeing it even more. Uh, how are they holding up? What, what kind of story is they telling you? They're really, really, um, they've suffered what we call sort of moral injury. It's uh, one thing to be a physician or a nurse and to deal with death. That's something that happens all the time. But it's it's the pure volume of uh, the number of patients coming in and dying that's just, it becomes overwhelming. And it's been going for a year. I was just talking to a friend of mine who's a nurse, and she said last night, in the hospital that she was working at, 12 patients died on her shift, 12. And she had to go into a room and just cry just because of the, just the sadness for 12 families that had, had suffered through this. So the healthcare system is on the edge in California and the healthcare workers are definitely feeling this. There's lots of depression. There's uh, lots of drug and alcohol problems. 
you just cannot do this kind of work day after day, month after month, and not have it affect you personally and have it affect the profession. So we're very concerned about sort of post-traumatic stress disorder amongst our colleagues. It's really a real thing. Hospital workers have told me about conditions at some hospitals, especially smaller hospitals where cafeterias cafeterias are being used as ICUs, gift shops as step-down units and other things that are you know, just unimaginable. Yeah, the, there are some hospitals here that are exactly doing that. It's, uh, they're so overwhelmed that first you fill up your ICU and then you fill up the normal sort of medical surgical floor and you turn that into an ICU. And the patients keep coming and they don't leave often for weeks because of this disease. And so patients start being moved into literally the cafeteria and literally the flower shop um, just for space. Now that is, you know... In a surge, when you have a, an earthquake or you have a pandemic, we can surge patients into those areas. But that's not uh, the best place to be looked after. And of course, that means that there are a lot of patients there that aren't getting the best care because we've stretched our nursing staff in particular so thin. And there are just so many patients in the hospital that they can't possibly maintain ratios. Normally, an ICU nurse would look after one or two patients. They're asked now to be looking after four, five, six patients. You can't give the same kind of care when you're practicing under those circumstances. So the hospitals are bursting and the staff is stretched thin and the staff is burnt out. And you and I have talked about this off the air, but I haven't mentioned it on the air, and I'm only going to mention it now because it brings up a problem. I don't think it's getting talked about much, which is I was supposed to have surgery, would not normally be considered elective surgery by any stretch of the imagination, this very week in Southern California. It's uh, been put off for who knows how long. There are a lot of people, besides the COVID cases, there are a lot of people who normally would be undergoing important surgery during this time who are not getting it because the hospitals simply can't guarantee their safety or even just handle it. Yeah, that's right. We talked months ago about that off the air, and I said, uh, I don't think you're going to be getting that surgery because this surge is coming. And when it happens, that's one of the things you have to do. You have to shut down elective surgery. And I use air quotes there because a lot of these surgeries are really important. They need to be done, but they're not like you just got you know, in a car accident and you're bleeding to death and that person has to go to surgery or they'll die. Many of these electric surgeries are really important and they can't be done during this time because they cannot be done safely. And they can't be done safely because... There's no ICUs for you, and although most people go to surgery and don't need an ICU, you must have ICU bed capacity just in case something goes wrong, even if you're only going to be in the ICU for a short amount of time. And again, the nursing staff from the surgical wards, for example, have been redeployed. They've been taken to work in the COVID units, into the ICUs, into the emergency departments. So there's just not the staff to do the elective surgery. And I, as I say again, it, it seems benign. Well, we stopped the elective surgery, but... Many of these surgeries are really important and patients are suffering. And there's even a sort of a semi-elective surgeries like cancer surgeries that can't get done right now. So those people are sitting on cancers that are growing bigger because they can't have the surgery that they need. It's not an emergency surgery. It's called an elective surgery, but it's not really an elective surgery. So it's a disaster not just for the COVID patients. It's a disaster for everybody that needs medical care during this time.
We're also going through something right now. We have these new variants, um, some from Great Britain, some from South Africa. A couple have popped up now that seem to have developed here in the United States. And that's going to make this surge even bigger, even while people are waiting to get a vaccine. Arizona right now has more than two-thirds of the ICUs full, and they're expecting a surge of 50% in the week ahead. So even though we have the promise of these vaccines, things are getting worse and worse in the meantime. That's right. We're in this bizarre period where the vaccines are rolling out slower than we'd like, but they're rolling out. Um, But right at the same time, we're seeing an enormous surge, particularly in California and Arizona. And part of that surge we've been a little bit confused about, but it might be these variants are more infectious, as um, has been suggested from the United Kingdom. And so people are, you know, it's the colder months, people have gone inside. And then if these are as infectious as some people think, you know, some people think they may be 50% more infectious, then, yeah, that just adds to uh, the surging of the cases. There's now another variant from Nigeria that people are concerned about, the one from South Africa are very concerned about. And as you say, there might actually be variants here in the United States that are homegrown that are more infectious. You know, when you think about it, this virus is affecting millions, millions of people. And in each person, they're producing trillions of copies of this virus. And so there's an enormous amount of uh, pressure for that virus to change. Now, thankfully so far... It looks like these are just variants. They're not new strains, and the variations in the virus are not so much that the vaccines aren't going to work. The experts are telling us that even though some of the spike proteins, that part of the virus that attaches to your cells, has changed a little bit in some of these variants, not enough for the vaccines to work because the vaccines are often working on 20 different uh, parts of that spike um, protein. So for now, we're pretty comfortable that the vaccines are going to continue to work, but we really need to deploy as many and as fast as possible to have some effect on this giant surge. But um, it's really not about vaccines right now. Yes, we should be doing it as much and as fast as possible, but it's still the public health things are the only thing they're going to squash this curve. You know, the physical distancing, um, wearing a mask, you know, not being inside with other people outside your bubble, all that's more important now and more important when you have even more infectious virus than it's ever been. We have more just ahead with Dr. Mel Herbert on how hospitals are dealing with COVID coming up here on America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. 
Welcome back to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross, and we continue our conversation now with Dr. Mel Herbert, who's been an emergency room physician and instructor at UCLA for years and also runs MRAP, which has emergency department physicians everywhere sharing their knowledge and experience. People, you know, generally hear about big cities like where you are in Los Angeles because these are media centers. There's a lot of reporters there. A lot of information comes out of there. Also, a lot of this, just because how people are kind of squished together in big cities, a lot of this spread initially first in big cities. But now rural communities are being hit, places like Butler County, Kansas, other rural communities in Alabama and Tennessee, places where hospital capacity, much less ICU beds, can't handle this. And part of the problem that we're seeing with that around the country now is that the big city hospitals near them can no longer take referrals because they're full up. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. And you nailed it. Um, These smaller communities thought that uh, this was a big city problem. And it's now shown that it is not a big city problem. There are small communities all across the United States that are being hit hard by this virus. took a little bit longer to get there, but now it's there and it's spreading. And as you say... They don't have the capacity to surge. Big cities have big hospitals and lots of doctors and nurses and lots of space, and we can do a surge pretty well. But many of these communities have no hospital or a very small hospital. And if you have any significant um, surge, their capacity to look after these patients is really very poor. And as you say, normally what they do is put you in an ambulance and drive you or fly you to the big city uh, hospital you know, a few hours away. But those hospitals are saying, sorry, we can't even look after the patients we've got, let alone your patients. So this is now a problem for the entire country. I know people look at what happened at the Capitol as a political and criminal matter or the thousands of Alabama football fans are crowded in the streets happily in Tuscaloosa after the success of the Crimson Tide as a sports story. But to you, seeing these huge crowds, many people, most people not masked, as a doctor, as somebody in the ER, what, what are your fears about these kind of events? Yeah, whenever I see these, I always think about, well, um, there's a significant number of those people that are going to end up in the ICU about a month after that event. You know, the one thing about outdoor crowds is that we know that this virus is significantly less infectious outside compared to inside. Some people have estimated it's 20 times less infectious when you're outside. But I was looking at um, those Alabama crowds and they were just squashed so close together, just thousands and thousands of people in the streets squashed really close together. And so although they were outside, when you're that close, when you are literally shoulder to shoulder with people, that virus is going to explode through that crowd. That is going to be a super spreader event. When you see what happened on the Capitol, and then there are people inside yelling, screaming, lots of droplets flying everywhere, no masks being worn, and sometimes not being worn by the Congress people as well. Again, I see a, sp- a spreader event on top of a political event. I know through MRAP you get to talk to physicians, nurses, and emergency departments all around the country. And I wonder if you've heard anything about this. According to Associated Press, some some nursing homes and hospitals are seeing as much as 80% of their staff refusing to get vaccinated, even though it's being offered to them. Have you heard much about that? Yeah, I hear these stories and I read them and I don't understand why. I mean, I, I understand that there are these are new vaccines and some people are a bit concerned. But um, I don't know any physician or any nurse personally, um, and I know hundreds of them, that haven't taken this vaccine, that haven't been right in the front of the line when it was their time. 
I don't know any. I keep hearing these stories and I, I wonder where they're coming from. I wonder how true they are. There is always, even within the medical community, certain people who won't take the vaccine, sometimes for very good reasons that they're immune compromised and they've been told that they shouldn't. Um, but to hear some of these stories, I just wonder um, if they're part of some uh, disinformation campaign or whether it's a small community which sort of develops its own sort of anti-vaccine spirit. But I can tell you here in Los Angeles, that is simply not the case, um, that for the physicians and docs that I know at, at two really large university hospitals or multiple hospitals and systems, not one person I've uh, come across isn't taking this vaccine. Well, it's good to talk to you as usual, although the reason always stinks. I look forward to the day, Mel, where you and I can just sit and have a beer and talk about what a lovely day it is. Yes, please let that uh, be soon. I did hear some good news. Um, there was about, and I can't remember the exact numbers, but about 130 healthcare workers in the UCLA system were getting infected every week or so. Um, huge system thousands of people and that's now since the vaccines have started dropped to under 20 so we're seeing within healthcare populations already that the vaccine is working so when it's your chance go get the vaccine we will leave it on that good news note dr mel herbert has spent years in emergency rooms as a physician and teaching at ucla he also has the service mrap where emergency department physicians and nurses get to share their knowledge and experience from around the world mel stay well YouTube, you'll. Thanks. You're listening to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. This is America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. Almost lost in all the political news is that COVID is raging out of control. The vaccine rollout is steady but slow, and on many days, over 4,000 Americans are dying. That's a 9-11 death toll and more every day. And many of the people who survive it are suffering health problems that may haunt them for life. So where are we with the vaccines? Are more on the way? And why are there all of these problems getting them out there? Joining us is Dr. Michelle McMurray-Heath, the president and CEO of Bio, which represents the biotechnology community. And then more than that, she's a medical doctor and molecular immunologist. Good to talk to you again. Let's start with the rollout. It has been, at the very least, awkward because of the nature <laughs> of the deep freeze conditions these two RNA vaccines need in distribution. We, we've seen some loss of vaccine. What's going on? So it's nothing short of shameful. Um, we knew this was coming. We knew it was going to be logistically challenging to get the vaccine out to the people who are desperately waiting for it. But we did not prepare as well as we could have. We had a great plan to develop a vaccine. We didn't fully execute on a plan to actually vaccinate. And developing the shot is a lot different from giving it. So we're trying to do everything we can to help support that. You know, our companies have volunteered to make their resources available in any way possible. And we are trying to meet um, what we know will be a growing demand, but we have to start seeing a pickup in the execution. And it, one of the good pieces of news is that in the most recent congressional COVID relief bill, finally, uh, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention got their full resource ask for the resources needed to go out to the states to assist them in the distribution of the vaccine. How did this happen? Because I'm going to quote you here, although you've pretty much said this. You said in the past that we had a vaccine plan, but we did not have a vaccination plan. There were so many months we had this disease roaring about that 
we could plan for this. Where was the ball dropped? Well, Operation Warp Speed was very open about the fact that they were really targeting interventions and solutions that could be um, to the U.S. public. First, they said November of, by November of 2020, then by the end of 2020, and they stretched finally into quarter one. But it was never a long-range look at what was going to be needed. So you combine that with the fact that a lot of the final logistics, that crucial last mile, have been left to the states who were already crippled under the growing ranks of unemployment, their growing Medicaid roles, and just the growing dysfunction of having to live day to day under COVID restrictions, and Congress not moving on a COVID relief bill in time to distribute much needed funds to help the states in those execution plans. And it was a, a train wreck waiting to happen. And, and that's what we've seen. We are seeing signs that it's turning around, and that's extremely good news. But they're not going far enough or fast enough. Yeah, for people who wonder about that, because I've heard some people say, well, the states are the ones that were supposed to take care of this. The federal government can print money. States cannot. And the majority of states have balanced amendments, uh, balanced budget amendments that are part of their state constitution. They cannot actually spend more than a certain amount of money. So federal help was needed here, but it didn't come. You know, we've been on the phone with governors across the country over the last couple of months, and it was so heartbreaking to hear some of the struggles they were facing. I, I remember one conversation, a governor said, well, you know, I have funds to move the vaccines from the airport to the hospitals and to train people in administering the vaccines, but I have absolutely zero funds as of today, and this was in December, um, for running the IT system that the government is mandating I use when I administer the vaccine in part so we can track everyone and find them for their second dose. And more importantly, so we can track any adverse events. So we know as soon as possible um, if there's any sign of trouble. Um, and so far, the good news is that there has not been. But the states needed um, really multifunctional, multifactorial funds to help them implement this um, vaccine rollout for the states that actually did have a comprehensive plan. And it shouldn't have been left to chance. We should have had a national template. We should have had a very in a, far in advance national funding. And we're, ju we're just seeing the effects of not having that. And there are weird situations out here because if these particular vaccines maybe need to be kept cold, need to be kept in deep freeze conditions, if they're out of that for 12 hours, they're not usable. And I've, a guy I know has, has a, a pal who was in a drugstore at night just before the pharmacy closed, just to grab some Hot Pockets from the food section. And the pharmacist yelled out, hey, you want a COVID vaccine? And I'm glad it didn't go to waste because it would have, but this is not what anybody imagined. No, no. And it's unnecessary. You know, my, my mother-in-law lives in Germany, and even before the vaccine hit the streets there, um, she, who's 90 years old, had an appointment, a, a day and time of where she needed to be to get her vaccine in the first couple of weeks. That's the kind of organization that's going to be necessary. We think the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention move from the 1A grouping, which just includes frontline medical workers and senior citizens that are in nursing home facilities, to 
open it up to the 1B category, which starts to include more senior citizens as well as those who have um, two or more um, serious chronic conditions and other frontline workers could also do a great deal because at, at the 1B stage, you don't just have hospitals administering it. You also have more pharmacy chains getting into the mix. And our pharmacies know how to do this. They have computer systems. They've been administering flu shots. They know how to get things out to the community. So we need as many hands on deck as possible. And if we're at the point where we're running out of the out of the aisles of the drugstore um, late at night, giving away COVID vaccine before it goes down the drain, we are to the point where we can open up for the for the one B category. Well, the CDC did make a change this week. All available doses are being released with nothing held back for second doses. And the feeling is there's enough coming down the line that there will be enough for second doses. You know, I've heard numbers all over the place about what a first dose does, anything from 50 to 90 percent effective. But do you think from what you've heard from companies that there is enough second dose coming that this is an okay thing to do? And if not, is there enough data from testing to know how effective one dose is and how long that might last? It is absolutely the right thing to do. Our companies are ramping up production and that ramp up is going incredibly well, particularly for Moderna and Pfizer, who have the two emergency use authorized vaccines in circulation today. So we time is of the essence, especially given that there's a new, more highly infectious strain of COVID out there that seems at this point to be also susceptible to the vaccine. The curve is steepening, and we need to get out as soon as we can and vaccinate as many people as possible. We do not have a good sense of the protection that one dose of the two vaccines that are currently out there provide. We know that in the window between, in the clinical trial, in the window between the first dose and the second dose, we seemed we it appeared that we had some amount of protection um, for people in the clinical trial who received the active. Um, vaccine. That is great news and very wonderful to know. But we have no data on whether or not that protection, 50%, 75%, was durable. So was it, it not only was it not as good as having two doses of the vaccine, we also have no idea how long it will last without the booster. So your booster shot is critical. Just as you do for your children, you don't skip the booster shots you must have your booster of your COVID vaccine shots. And our companies are doing everything they can to make sure that those are available. Also realizing that we have to administer this to as many people as quickly as possible. We have more on vaccinations and COVID coming up with Dr. Michelle McMurray Heath, the president and CEO of Bio here on America Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy 
is our best policy. Welcome back to America Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross, and we've been talking to Dr. Michelle McMurray-Heath, the president and CEO of Bio, which represents the biotechnology community. We still have a large part of the American population that does not intend to get vaccinated. Either they're anti-vaccination or they're just not sure about this. They want to see, you know, more people and what side effects they may have and, and all of that. How worried are you about that, especially with these more contagious variants about? This is no time um, to hesitate. We are in a war and we have to we have to fight it seriously. Um, we launched a website in November that is still going strong and we're adding to it every day called covidvaccinefacts.org, which lays out all the science behind the vaccines and answers any questions you may have in lay accessible language. It's available both in English and in Spanish. Please, if you have any questions, visit the website, look at the data, understand the process. Um, we know it's complex. We know that it's been a lot to take in in 2020. 2020 was a lot to process, but this is so important for the future of 2021. It's we need to climb out of this hole and we have to use the tools available to do so. There's a paper out this week in the Journal of Science which says if we can get enough people vaccinated, even though this particular coronavirus may be with us forever, it could become like the common cold. Annoying. You'll get it. You'll get the sniffles. It won't be deadly. It again brings up that question, what if we don't get enough people vaccinated? But I don't know if you've seen this study, but just hearing that, are you hopeful about where we might get to with this? Yes, I'm very hopeful. Um, you know, we've we've seen this with influenza. The the scourge of 1918 was an influenza-based virus, and we've gotten used to managing influenza now. We should get to the point where we're able to manage um, coronaviruses, but we're not there yet, and we need everyone to help us get there. Final question. I want to leave with with something hopeful here. Part of the excitement about these mRNA vaccines is that even though this particular group has been developed to fight COVID, this has been a long sought for kind of science because it could be useful in many things. Moderna has already announced they're going to go after seasonal flu and even HIV. Some say this kind of vaccine may one day lead to vaccinations against certain types of cancer. Looking beyond COVID, how promising is this technology? It's incredibly promising. It's it's so promising that some experts are starting to call for a 100-day vaccine window. That means the ability to produce and distribute a vaccine within 100 days of seeing a new strain of a virus. And the mRNA te platform technology gives us that opportunity. It puts that goal within reach. We're not there yet, um, but it's looking hopeful. And I, for one, am so glad to know that as new variants of the virus emerge, if we do see ones that can escape our current vaccines, we can use this technology to respond much more quickly um, to the next coronavirus than we did to this one. And even though this one was um, a, was miles, milestone setting in its speed, the next one could be even faster. And that's so important for putting these viruses at bay. I'm going to go on that positive note. Dr. Michelle McMurray-Heath is the president and CEO of Bio, which represents the biotech industry, a medical doctor, a molecular immunologist. And as always, I thank you so much for sharing your expertise and knowledge with us. Thank you for having me. You're listening to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Produced by Paul Woody Woodhull and District Productive, I'm Gil Gross. 
Catch every episode of 60 Minutes, America's most watched news magazine show, as a podcast. Hear in-depth investigations across politics, news, and entertainment on your schedule. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus.